In today's episode, we are joined by Spencer Tuttle, the CRO at Redis. Spencer takes us on an incredible journey through his career, highlighting his rapid ascent from an individual contributor to a CRO in just eight years. He also delves into his experience as a first-line leader, emphasizing the pivotal role of transparency, team building, and fostering a growth-orientated culture. This is his playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Spencer Tuttle. Spencer, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Spencer. By way of an introduction, Spencer, you are currently the CRO of Redis, an amazing project that we're really looking forward to hearing a lot more about. But actually, as part of this recording today, one of the things that we really, really want to focus on is you've had such a sharp trajectory in terms of your career and how you've been able to transition from individual contributor all the way to kind of CRO in such a in, in such a, a, a fast, in, a, in such a fast way, really want to understand how that happens and some of the fundamentals. And we'll go through the journey from the start and kind of come back right round to the uh, the present day. But in, in in a in a very broad way, Spencer, where does it all start? You know, what what are the fundamentals that you think have given you the foundations to have such a, a trajectory? That is an open-ended question. <laughs> it is, I did say. Uh, look, I think it's, uh, we were talking about this before the show. I mean, you got to take one step at a time. I mean, you say it's obviously been a real quick journey. It hasn't felt like a quick journey throughout that journey. It's, it's been a lot of different roles and a lot of different successes and kind of trials and tribulations at the end of the day. But uh, we were talking about it. You know, you can't be a great sales rep unless you're a great SDR and you can't go be a great frontline leader unless you're, you know, a great AE at the end of the day. And the beauty about the career path is just trying to, you know, master that position that you're in at that moment in time so that you can open yourself up for the next one. So obviously, you kind of mentioned there that you have to be a great SDR to be a great, you know, rep. Has your focus always been mastery or has it been just being accountable, just just kind of in a, in a much more general? What's, what's your focus? What's your mindset been at each gate of that? of that journey? I think it's a couple things. That's a good question. I think, I mean, first and foremost, it's learning from as many people around you as humanly possible, right? I mean, you can look at the journey. I've been lucky enough to work for some incredible people and, and work alongside some incredible people, peers and leaders at the end of the day. And, and I think it's trying to get as many nuggets from each one of those individuals when you're in that moment and in, in that journey. And then you know, I think the secret sauce is trying to combine all those little nuggets together and make it your own so that you're credible at the end of the day. You know, you're, you're real, you're transparent, and you can bring that to your team, your organization at that moment in time. Did you go in there? I think it's six years you finished an IC to then get to your first CRO gig. Did you go in there with the mindset, I want to become a CRO, or did it naturally happen? I definitely did not go in with the mindset of wanting to be a CRO. I wake up some mornings and still question if I want to be a CRO. No, not at all. I mean, like, like if you go back and look at the journey, I think I, think I took, I jumped into opportunities because they sounded exciting at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I left BMC and joined AppDynamics because there was an incredible number of people joining AppDynamics that moment in time that I knew were great. 
And I wanted to be part of that. I didn't quite know what that even meant, you know? I knew that I had to go execute on my job at that moment in time, which was an IC, but I wasn't going into AppDynamics saying, I want to go become a leader, second, third line leader. I was just thinking about that moment and the opportunity and the people that were kind of around me or, you know, on that journey with me. Yeah. I suppose then the question is, did you know you were ready for each of those next development areas? No, no. still. Yeah. Right. No, I, th I think you get forced into or thrust into opportunities probably a little before you're ready. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously I know you got a lot of different kind of subset of listeners. I would just urge people to take advantage of that, right? If, if you got great leadership around you and above you, you can hop into opportunities probably a little bit before you're ready for them. And I think that's been my journey if you look at it. You talk about the fact that you were kind of unconsciously competent before you became consciously competent. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so obviously I started at a company called Coradian. I mean, you guys can check the years as you're taking that's what I'm doing as now. you're looking at your notes. <laughs> and uh, I, it was a bootstrapped you know, startup technology company probably before that was really all the rage. You know, obviously there's hundreds of those now. This was back in, I think, 2005, 2006. And I, I was on that journey for four or five years, starting as an SDR, got out into the field, ended up moving down to New York to open up an office in New York, and really just tried to figure out how to sell by hitting my number, you know, staying active and creating as much pipeline and opportunity as possible. I don't think it was really until uh, you know, BMC acquired CoRadiant, and I re I didn't know what Medic was. I didn't know what I knew what they were in theory, but I didn't have this playbook or this you know treasure map, so to speak, on on how to go through an opportunity. And and that really kind of started that change to becoming a lot more competent. I would say. Absolutely, because I think yeah, just to, to verify those times, obviously joined as an SDR in two thousand and six. Um, did that for a year then moved into channel sales manager 2007, 2008, and out onto the fields in, in a senior account AE role, 2007 to 2011. So a good five years of, you know, that, that I suppose, uh, entry into software sales and thrown into the fire 2011 at BMC. Yeah. Talk to us about that journey and talk to us about, you know, that exposure to, you know, the, the playbook as we know it. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely thrown into the fire, I'll tell you. Like, there was only, as I said, it was a Boston-based company. And I think there was three of us in New York. There was one other salesperson and an SE. That was the size of the New York team. Uh, we got acquired by BMC, and they brought us into one of those Monday kind of huddle PG days. Because they, the second, you know, they had a new tool in their tool, tool belt they wanted to start generating pipeline. And they just threw me in the middle of this lion's den. And I had no idea what I was walking into. And, uh, you know, started to introduce them to Coradian and what we did. And all of a sudden, it just became a drill down on my forecast. I was having people, you know, uh, ask me questions about my forecast, my pipeline. I was like, what the hell <laughs> am I walking into right now? And um, it's a pretty funny story, actually. I, I, there's a guy that you've had on your show, Dave Boyle. And... Uh, uh, Dave's a legend in his own right. And uh, he learned that it, it, it kind of in this first session, I don't even know if the acquisition had closed yet, I had a mature opportunity with Estee Lauder, uh, you know, like deep in, the, deep in the pipeline. And we had a meeting later that week, and he's like, I'm coming with you. And I was like, all right, this guy is energetic, to say <laughs> yeah. the least. You know what I mean? 
And you know, starts asking me all these questions: Is the economic buyer in there? Is this is this a midpoint review? You know, have we done a POV scoping? Have we done a business value assessment? And and I really didn't know any of these acronyms. I knew how to define and defend the value of Coradian. I knew how to you know go find budget holders and and go build champions. But I didn't really know like the lingo of all that. And you know, Dave joins me for uh, a POC playback meeting at the end of the day, and we did have the economic buyer in the room. We go and do you know a, a POC playback, and we ended up getting the deal. And uh, you know, Dave and I walk out, and he's like, "You got to join BMC as a rep. You can't be an overlay anymore." And uh, it was great, you know, like it really changed my journey because you know, two days later, I was sitting with Dan Fougere and Michael Lendener doing a. Yeah, a sales challenge, which I didn't even know existed back then, and you know, joined BMC to be an enterprise account executive for the next three years. What was your reaction to that? That you know, taking yourself back to that moment, that moment of realization. Take us back to, to you know how you felt. What were you were thinking? How did it adjust your motivation or your thoughts or your priorities? Help us understand that a bit more. I, I think I realized that uh, this is a true profession, you know, and and, and the best in the business here treat this like that and 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 you know up to that moment in time I, I understood and got to witness a lot of sales professionals but I think then I got to see a network that truly treated this as as a science and an art and we're trying to better themselves every day in terms of being more predictable and driving you know more success for themselves and their and their organizations and and their customers, and that was addicting. I think that's what I fell in love with. Yeah. And, and what steps did you take to develop, right? You've obviously got some real good support mechanisms around you, but as we know, it isn't just about, you know, finding yourself a coach and, you know, working with that coach. It takes a lot more than that. You know, what, at that stage, how did, your, how did your mindset change and what were you doing additional to not necessarily keep up, but to continue learning? I think, I think it's self-reflection, you know? I mean, it's, it's witnessing and watching how other people execute on, you know, what you guys have called the playbook and what everyone calls the playbook right now. And it's, and it's understanding where your gaps are in there and what you can learn from these folks to go make your own and bring that into your business, whether it be, you know, early in the pipeline from a PG perspective or champion building or, you know, going and running a, an incredible POV or POC. It's, it's witnessing others and then going and just trying and testing that yourself. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's the bias for action, though. You know, you can listen to these podcasts all day. You can read every book, you know, on the shelf. But if, but if you're not taking what you've learned and then going and trying to implement it really, really quickly and learning from it, I don't think you're ever going to get better. Did you always bet your number? Uh, I think for the most part <laughs> I did make my number, yeah. And when you were at BMC, obviously, it's a, it's a different type of organization. There's yeah. obviously a lot of pressure. Did you kind of find that was in your comfort zone or, or, or did you have to get yourself uncomfortable and, and kind of change your behaviors or, or was it just a natural fit for you? I think you either loved that environment or you hated it, if you want me to be honest. And I loved it, like from day one. I thought I saw myself just around people that really, like we just talked about, took this profession seriously and wanted to better themselves. And I decided if this is what I want to do for my career, this is, these are the type of people I want to surround myself by. So I was addicted to it like the first weekend. Uh, you know, I think others could have um, 
veered away from it. There was there was an intensity, there was a pressure, there was a pace that you know some might not have appreciated. But I thought it was fantastic. If you were to talk to your reps that are kind of early in their career, people joining your business, or you know, lots of our listeners are at different stages of their career, what what would you take from that moment in time? Because obviously, the vast majority of, of reps are going to be there right now. So, what 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 advice would you be giving them in terms of what they should be focusing at that stage when you are in, reflecting on where you were on your journey? Put some pressure on yourself, right? Like. Um Don't be afraid to, to, to put that pressure on yourself. I, th- I think it was a pressure-packed culture and industry at, at that moment in time. You know, if, if you weren't generating pipeline, you were probably out. If you weren't hitting your number on a regular basis, you were probably out. And uh, I think, you know, that's not a bad thing to be a part of. So I, I would say veer into the pressure. As they say, pressure is a privilege, you know. And um, So is that being more ambitious? Is that being more... You know, generate what what does actually put pressure on yourself mean don't make excuses you know hold yourself accountable on a weekly basis a monthly basis a quarterly basis with your leadership with yourself it's a two-way street but um you, you know at the end of the day find a way to find a way and I, I think that's what i mean by by putting some pressure on yourself take the excuses out of the business and find a way to find a way and and i think that was definitely built into that bmc culture for those years Sure. So obviously two very successful years at BMC and then 2013 joined, you know, the very prestige sales organization App Dynamics 2013. Can you tell us about that transition and how that came about? Yeah, as we were talking offline, I think um, you knew there was you knew there was a talented bunch of people at BMC for those few years that I was there. And I started to uh, see folks kind of go on different journeys. This is where people really started to go to those kind of pre-IPO, pre-unicorn. This mm. was before unicorns existed. So truthfully, I was just following talent. I saw people like Paul Cap and Jesse Green and Dolly Ryak and others go to App Dynamics, And I said, you know, this is a place that I want to be and join there, I think, in 2013. And uh, it was just a wild pace, you know, throughout the next seven years there of obviously, you know, growing massively year over year and giving all of our, ourselves, you know, multiple opportunities to grow in our career. You would have had lots of options at that moment, I, I imagine, because you had, you know, the, the perfectos, you had the, you yeah. know, you, you've got, you know, Vexa, a bunch of so yeah. there was lots of different directions you could have gone. What was it? Why did you choose Apti? It's great. It is a good question. Um, so first and foremost, I was in the space. Uh, before BMC being a co-radiant, we were a front-end application performance monitoring solution. From a technical perspective, I knew that if you could go figure out the back end, if you could go figure out distributed transactions and where the code was having performance issues, that was the secret sauce. Uh, you know, AppDynamics got up and running very, very quickly. Like the total cost of ownership and the time to value was incredible. And as a salesperson, you got to see it with your customers and your prospects. And you understood this before joining AppDynamics. And then a lot of what we talked about, I mean, people. I I, I think you got to go trust leadership and where great people are going. And um, if I learned anything from AppDynamics, you know, technology matters, timing matters, market matters. But the most important thing is being part of a great team. And I thought that just uh, pre- presented itself in spades at AppDynamics. In our first series, obviously, we spoke a lot about the importance of Blade Logic, laying the foundations of the playbook. Yeah. But uh, many will argue at, at 
app dynamics is where it was just there was the further iterations just took it to another level. What what were you experiencing in that time at AppD and how how the playbook started to evolve? And, um, and tell us about your momentum as part of that process as well. Yeah, I think obviously if you look at pre-app dynamics, the playbook was especially if you go to post PG into the into the proof of concept, the proof of value stage, the getting to the economic buyer, it was a much it was much more set in stages because you weren't really going to deploy software on a POC until you got to the economic buyer, you got full scoping. AppDynamics was the first time where you could start to do a free trial. Software was much easier to use. It was much quicker. It was much more fluid. So we had to start to pivot the playbook into that new pace at the end of the day. You had to figure out how to build champions. You had to figure out how to qualify POCs and get it into a process when folks could really quickly take you out of that process. When it was really hard to take folks out of the process pre that at BMC, you either engaged in the process or you didn't and you wouldn't go evaluate the software. I think AppDynamics changed that and what that leadership team did, what everyone did there was continuously try to reinvent ourselves to, to map to that pace. I think secondly on that is, you know, it really became the transition for me and I think a lot of us from perpetual software to subscription software. And, and the difference was, um, not to sound like, like a horrible salesperson, is perpetual software, you could sell it and kind of go, you, you kind of left and went and kept hunting for your next customer because the 20% maintenance was due on top of that. Subscription software, I mean, you're, it's only worth while to your company if you go renew that customer, delight that customer, expand and renew that customer. So uh, I think that's when we really started to bring in a lot of um, the value kind of as we were deploying software throughout the life cycle of the software up to the renewal and expansion. At what point of your journey in your career, would you say it was at BMC or do you think it was at App Dynamics? did you have the aha moment that you really got this? You know, the formula worked and you just got it. Look, I think you're always tweaking it, if right. I'm going to be really honest. I think once you think you've got it, you're probably in a lot of trouble. Okay. But I think um, there were a couple years there at AppDynamics where um, I, I was lucky enough to be running the Northeast and then the East, and we were just cranking. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that was incredible. Um, and, and, and the whole company was, though. So, so you definitely knew you were a part of something special there. And it wasn't just the technology. It was the whole go-to-market team engaging kind of cohesively. Yeah. Because you did that role at AppDynamics for two years. In 2015, stepped up to do your first-line leadership position yeah. as an area director, as you just mentioned, of the Northeast. Tell us about that. You know, you've now taken – how did you know you were ready? And what was it about taking on a first-line leadership Again, like we talked about, I don't know yeah. if I knew I was ready. <laughs> um, but it's kind of funny because, like, you look at software companies now, and if I look at any of my team, I think they try to get to leadership really, really quickly. I do think at that moment in time, and maybe I'm just kind of playing it back in my head, I wasn't in a rush to get to leadership. There was a belief back then that, you know, the highest performing ICs were the highest paid people in the company. And I just came off of, I think it was actually only 18 months where did very well for myself, you know, had two young kids and was saying, wait, do I want to leave this for, you know, a lot less upside at the end of the day and probably a lot more work. So um, it took me, you know, 
uh, a talking to from Dolly, which wasn't probably the first or last time that I got yeah. one. And then, and then I jumped in to that role and obviously really glad that I did. It, it, it changed my career and just changed the way uh, I look at this whole journey and, and kind of what I enjoy out of the role now, which is, uh, you know, obviously trying to put people in the position to succeed and help them succeed. Yeah. We had um, Brian Souza on the show um, recently, and obviously he's created a training program and he identified four particular traits when you step into a first line, when you, into your first line of first management role. Yeah. So you've got the super, um, uh, super rep who's going to go out there and do everything. Yeah. You've got the micromanager. You've got, what were the other or two? Or the nice guy. Or the nice guy. Yeah. Did, when you first took on that leadership role, did you fall into any of like, those types of camps or did you just... I think, I think it's probably easiest to go into the super rep, especially I, I was a rep at App Dynamics, so it's yeah. a lot easier to, to go into the super rep mode there. I think if you're coming in from the outside, you probably pick one of the other routes, which right. I, don't, I don't disagree with, right? The, the super nice guy or the micromanager. Uh, I was pretty lucky to, I mean, I think it was the first aha moment for me on how important that first R is, right? I, I was, uh, you know, I was told to go recruit a team and I was basically a team of one or two people at the time. And uh, I was um, lucky enough to go recruit a pretty great team pretty quickly. Um, you know, I went out and hired Josh Boland and Mike Vicini and John Kim in the matter of, you know, five or six days, essentially like that. And I think we did the math, you know, six or seven years later, and those three combined for like 175 million in total contract value software. So uh, it's 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 pretty easy to not be a super rep or not micromanage when you got a team like that. But you say that, but people obviously follow you, right? And and if you're going to have people like that who are going to choose you as a manager over a different manager or a different company, a different opportunity, you have to be able to provide them with something to say. I'm coming with Spencer on this journey. Tell us, wh why do you think they joined you on that journey? And why did they believe in you that you were going to help them get to where they needed to get to? Back then, I probably don't know. But now, <laughs> now the answer is, look, it's got to be a two-way street. Um, you know, obviously, what, what do we ask for uh, of an individual contributor? We ask for someone to come in and generate pipeline. We have someone to come in and... Uh, you know, manage their opportunities along, you know, everything that you, you folks have talked about in the playbook and do it with professionalism, do it with high character, right? Be curious with your customers. And, and what do we have to return? We have to return a culture of enablement and, and a culture where folks can learn and earn and grow their career massively. So if you're not providing that back as a leader, I think, uh, I think you're going to fail pretty quickly. How important do you think it is it has been for your trajectory, the fact you've always been able to hire really well. Uh, like I said, the first hour is pretty critical. Um, I, I think, I think once you figure that out as a leader, you know, you can, you can get around some, some probably mistakes if you have a great team. And like I said, I think I learned that in those BMC days being around what I thought was a pretty special team that I was lucky to kind of, uh, you know, move into after that acquisition. And I definitely saw it at App Dynamics. So when you see it and you've seen the movie play out before, you know how important it is. But there's one thing wanting it. It's another thing doing it. How were you able to recruit well? Or what did you do differently, do you think, perhaps to maybe some others? Or what things have served you well in being able to recruit good teams? Look, 
you've got to pick a great company so that you can offer what we just talked about, like the, the, the organizational opportunity and the culture for folks to advance their career, for folks to learn, for folks to obviously earn kind of life-changing money. And then you've, um, you've got to be able to be transparent, I think. Uh, I, I think one of the things that has helped me get to where I, where I am and really work with the team is I'm open and honest on what I expect and want from them. And I'm open and honest in terms of what I'm working on personally and professionally and, you know, where our gaps may be in an organization and what we're working on. You know, the last thing that I want is someone to walk into Redis tomorrow and not understand what they're walking into. Like, that is a quick way to ruin all credibility and, frankly, to have a turnover rate or an attrition rate that's too high. So uh, I think it's obviously offering the organizational and culture aspects that we talked about, but a lot of it's transparency. Um, knowing what you're walking into and knowing where we want to go and painting that story for folks and asking them to be part of it. Like, it's not a one-person show. It's not a two-person show. People ask me a lot now because we've, we've made a lot of hiring uh, decisions at Redis, like what is the culture that I'm walking into? And I say, <laughs> hopefully you're part of the culture that we're creating or we're hiring the wrong person. And, and that's what I mean by kind of the transparency and two-way street. I think that's how. So obviously you'd started to make the transition at that point, you've, you've gone into first line and then six years later you find yourself into CR. That's, that's a very, very quick transition. Tell us the, the steps and what did you do from first line to second line? What did you start to focus? What, what were the kind of epiphanies that were kind of, you started to realize and, and, and how much was it conscious and how much was it? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I would say the key part of that journey is being on a couple fast growing companies, right? I was able to advance steps because we had the opportunities to go do that at AppDynamics and then again at ThoughtSpot. And, I would say, you know, we talked about it. Frontline leader is definitely recruiting, probably being a little bit of a super rep, but making sure that you go execute on that. You go hit your number and, you know, you know the product thoroughly, you know the process thoroughly, you're out there building champions with your team. I think as you start to move up kind of into second and third line, you start to look at the business a lot more holistically, right? You really start to focus on the, the ecosystem and the impact that they have on the overall go-to-market and the team. You start to really uh, be focused on, obviously, SA hiring, SA retention, business value consultants, field marketing, so that you can start to do things at scale and with leverage. Um, but you can never take yourself too far out of the business at the same time. If you're not recruiting, if you're not retaining your great people, and if you're not getting into the field and understanding truly you know what's working in the field what your ic's are facing as blockers uh, i think you're in a lot of trouble actually you you, you can't leave that part of the business in any step uh, uh, in the journey at that moment there's obviously you, you know transitioning from first to second line there's a lot more things that start to be kind of join your priorities and the responsibility just starts to grow how do you make sure that you don't start losing focus on prioritization and, and what 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 you need to focus on to make sure that you can continue to bring bring impact and value everything you guys have talked about on every one of your podcasts like that i mean in all sincerity that's the beauty of it the beauty of it is if, if you actually believe in this playbook if you've been lucky enough to be in enablement that's talking about recruiting and retaining and revenue and all the steps in revenue from you know, pipeline generation to building champions to articulating value, 
make sure your activity is in one of those three buckets. Otherwise, throw it to the side. And if you over-rotate to one, make sure you get back to the other really, really quickly. Um, it's not rocket science at the end of the day if you truly do believe in it. It's just making sure you go execute it every day. <laughs> but at the same time, as you said, there's, there's different areas of a business that aren't on your radar at that point, right? Yeah. Everything's been very sales-focused. Yes, you're engaging with SEs and you're starting to look at through, you know, a peripheral view on those other areas of the organization. But, but where do you, do, do, were you conscious of that and saying to yourself, do you know what, being a naturally curious person, I want to understand how those other areas worked. And was that probably the point which helped you think, yes, I want to become that second, third, because I'm intrigued about these other areas of business or? Yeah, I think you're definitely intrigued by putting multiple components of the org and the team together to get to excellence for lack of a better term, but you're still got to put it together so that your ICs and your sellers can go hit their number, right? right? Like, that's what I mean. You, you can't, you can't lose focus on that. So, uh, all you're doing is actually bringing the playbook that was taught to you as an IC that was taught to you as a frontline sales leader and bringing that across more components of the organization and ideally having them think the way that we've been taught and the way that we executed in the field in the earlier parts of our kind of career. Yeah. So did you find a mentor at that stage? Was there, were, were you seeking that information to learn from your boss and, you know, and then? Yeah. I mean, obviously you and I t talked about this before. I've had a lot of lucky to have a lot of mentors throughout the time. So obviously throughout the app dynamics period, you know, I had Dolly above me um, throughout the entire time, but I worked for folks like Scott Davis and Brian McCarthy and, each one taught me a different kind of component of the business, you know? I mean, Brian was fantastic at the cultural piece and absolutely kind of bringing multiple parts of the ecosystem together into one team. I mean, Scott looked at, you know, the metrics tighter and stronger than anyone that I've ever worked with in my career and really made me definitely, you know, you know, I think naturally I maybe went to the more qualitative part of the business and uh, brought me back to that quantitative part of the business and made sure that I understand how the business was operating at scale. And, you know, obviously Dolly was looking at the business as a whole different realm, but, you know, really looking at multiple plays and how you can bring that across the business uh, and, and really produce pipeline, produce sales plays at the end of the day um, throughout the entire customer journey. And multi-pronged sales plays. And I think, you know, learning from each one of those three helped me grow in my career. So one of those one of those mentors to you was obviously Brian McCarthy, someone that you had, you know, really, really fond, you know, one of the one of the most influential by your own admission on, on your career. Um, what, why did you then continue the journey by joining him at ThoughtSpot? Look, I mean, for ThoughtSpot, it was professional and personal. I think uh, Brian gave me the opportunity that of a lifetime and i uh i never thought i'd have the opportunity to move to london and, and run europe and he, he gave me that opportunity and at that stage i think i had a five and an eight year old and i thought if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this now and um you know jumped in and moved my family to london in august of 2019 and it ended up being the best decision of my life uh both personally and professionally obviously but um from a professional perspective uh, I do think uh, having to run Europe when you're eight hours away from HQ is um, 
probably the best preparation to be a CRO that you can ask for. I mean, you're truly a GM of, of a business, more so than I think any position in kind of the go-to-market team. I still think that today. I think our our leader of EMEAN International, Stefan, right now, has to run it like a mini CEO or a mini CRO because um, you're so removed from kind of the heartbeat of the organization. And uh, I, I think that prepared me more than any position that I had to be a CRO. At that point of transitioning then and being successful in, a, in, in that second and third lines, when did the idea of becoming a CRO cross your mind and, you know, you mentioned you were never conscious, you just carried on and it just you just kept climbing, but did you ever have that? At, at what point did you have that, sorry, is the question. Yeah, I, I think once you started to get to third and maybe even fourth line at AppDynamics, you did start to see and understand that you could do this. Because at that stage, I think by the time we left AppDynamics, the East was north of a $200 million business. So you're running a business at scale there, and you definitely believe that you could go do that, you know, for a smaller company at that stage or a startup. So I think at that moment in time, I realized that this could be part of the journey. And um, but I didn't rush to it, like uh, like you and I talked about before the show. Like I always wanted to join opportunities that were exciting for me at the time that I could learn from and kind of grow from that would, you know, one day put me in that position. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because again, I know obviously putting a recruitment hat on you're probably approached that definitely within those six years, obviously you did six years at App Dynamics. You know, how, were you ever, you know, I suppose, what's the question I'm trying to ask? Tempted. Tempted to go and kind of like take on other opportunities and what stayed and why did you stay at App Dynamics? Yeah, of course. I think you're tempted. I'd be, I'd be lying if you haven't been tempted throughout your career. Um, and I think at that moment in time, at AppDynamics, you knew we were part of something great, you know? And to, to drag you out of AppDynamics before the acquisition would have been pretty hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like there wasn't a lot out there that was flying, you know, faster and higher than AppDynamics at that moment from a go-to-market and a sales perspective. I was just about to ask the question, what was it specifically that you were starting <laughs> to learn through taking on the European markets in addition international market? Look, I think, I think you've got to run your business separately than the Americas. So um, ThoughtSpot, we went through a number of different journeys, but uh, you know, we're an analytics solution and we were really trying to figure out our ideal customer profile, our ICP. And we figured it out. And we figured it out um, in terms of the ideal customer profile from a technology perspective, a vertical perspective, a size perspective. And because you're a little bit more nimble in, in Europe and you do kind of have the ability to influence the entire part of the organization over there, we pivoted uh, to kind of focus on that ICP, which for us was, you know, organizations with their data on top of Snowflake or BigQuery or Redshift and like really monetizing their data in, in, in kind of an embedded fashion. And because of that, um, because we were able to move quick and make those decisions ourselves kind of over in Europe, uh, it really empowered me to go do that, but then we were able to become the most productive team worldwide, right? And uh, I actually still think, you know, the, the European team is the most productive team today at ThoughtSpot, run by, you know, Damian Brophy and Adam Watkins, because we just got laser focused on ICP and got to, you know, have the whole organization kind of focused and, and energized around that. Um, yeah, I, I think you know the, the the point I think is quite interesting is that 
at that point, you didn't have anybody to learn from, did you? Mm. You know, so there is stepping into an How do you know? Do you go in there with just a, right, let's strip this all back, or just take us through the journey of what you're think, going through your head to try and do that job? Yeah, you're learning on the fly. I mean, just like any job, but it's a good point. Like I went over there and had probably no idea or true like right to run Europe, you know, but I knew how to run a sales team at scale. And uh, I knew, as we talked about earlier, you know, that second, third, fourth line journey, how to lead, you know, the overall ecosystem. And, and, and I do think that's what that job is. And then, you know, it's, it's learning quickly. It's getting down, you know, into the field still and understanding what's working there, what's not working there, and, and making decisions quickly to, to be able to pivot your business based off of qualitative and quantitative reasons. And we were able to do that pretty quickly over there. Mm. And how are you doing that? Are you going and speaking to the, you know, different you know, parts of Europe that break, you know, cut from a customer perspective to going and speaking to you personally, or are you orchestrating and getting that information through building a good team and getting them to bring that information? Both. You both. I mean, look, once you get to a certain level within the organization, I think your job is to go peel back the onion and find problems. Okay. Like you need to go search out things that are broken within the organization. And then you need to go get a strong team together and resolve those. And uh, I still think that's the case as being a CRO today. Otherwise, you know, you're not moving the business forward and you're not adding value to your team. So you do that through obviously hiring great people and listening to them, but you've got to go down yourself. You know, you got to get a couple levels down and understand what's working in the field, what's working in certain, you know, segments and parts of the business so that you can go put those sales plays in place at scale to improve the business. So obviously in the playbook, we talk a lot about happy years, right? Yeah. And, and obviously how, are you, are you applying the same principles in terms of how you scrutinize deal and qualification in how you're running your Amir business right there? To help us understand the parallels and, and how those experiences of being an effective seller yeah. are now helping you transition into an effective leader. Yeah, of course. You're bringing the culture that, you know, you would expect any of these great sales organizations in terms of hiring people with high energy, high intelligence, high curiosity, high character that want to go build their career. But then, you know, you're figuring out your sales stages, um, which can tweak, I think, definitely organization to organization and kind of solution to solution and putting in key gates through that. And what we were just talking about, I mean, we put in a critical gate um, very early in our sales process to understand if the organization was ready for our solution. And, um, you know, that helped us quickly, you know, discard any kind of um, unqualified pipeline and helped our sellers really focus on pipeline that they could convert. I only was able to do that with my team because I was able to experience that every stop of my career, either as a seller, a frontline leader, or a second line leader. So that's what I meant. You've just taken what you've learned and you're trying to understand what's working for that company at that moment in time. And then you're putting in something structural, structural that you can scale massively with a great team. Um, that's, mm. that's it. So Again, we've, we've personally seen it with organizations landing to the European market, bringing a playbook sales leader, and you know, it hasn't worked. You know, 
why do organizations just by applying that play but where do you think those types of organizations can potentially get it wrong i think it's lack of focus right as my previous ceo said and, and i respect it for it, you know startups die from indigestion not from starvation so uh you have to focus your team and over in europe i do think there's more of a challenge there everyone wants to open every market and everyone thinks their market is going to be the biggest market, whether it's, you know, Southern Europe, whether it's DOC, whether it's the Nordics, whether it's UK or the Middle East. I think you got to go back to first principles of ICP. Who are we selling to? What are our ideal customers? Where are they based? Where can I put people within Europe to get the most scale for that and hit those in the most scaled manner? Uh, I believe that was the secret that I learned over in Europe. Do you think that that there's a disconnect between really understanding the cultural differences and actually how that can affect who the ICP is, the personas, you know, the relationship, the, 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 the adaptations that are required or the tweaks. Or, or do you think that you should have a, 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 a playbook that you could just apply and that, that, that constitutes scale? I think the playbook always applies, right? If you're not generating a pipeline, if you're not building champions, if you're not identifying pain, if you're not getting into qualified sales cycles and proof of concept, it doesn't matter what region you're in that we just talked about. You know, the question is, you know, where do you pick first? What has the greatest propensity to buy and be successful as a region? And how do you make sure you get that going at scale before you go bite off more than you can chew at that moment in time? I think that's the key. It's not the playbook. The playbook is the Bible. Don't deviate from that. Really understand the market and where you have the greatest, you know, chance of being successful based on understanding the market, understanding the customers and understanding where you've had success to date. So obviously you've gone over to Europe. Yeah. You've been very successful, created a very, very successful business yep. unit for two years, VP I, of Amir. I learned about football. <laughs> your football, just to be The one with your feet. The one where you actually yeah, the one with your feet. I actually learned about it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I can't play it, but yeah, I learned about okay. it. I just figured we'd cover that too. <laughs> I'm not a big football fan, but I'm sure Simon would be able to relate to that. But um, so, you, so you learn a lot about football in Europe, and then you've obviously got an opportunity to take on Brian McCarthy's role yeah. at that particular time as the CRO. Yeah. Talk to us about that, right? And, and that transition and what made... what why you knew it was the right time? Um, I knew it was the right time, just like a lot of other steps in my career. It, it was it was the moment that I had to go do it, right? Uh, we were having a lot of success in Europe, and I thought we were having um, a lot of success worldwide. And obviously, Brian moved on to a great opportunity at Rubric, and it gave me the opportunity at that moment in time to go do it, you know? Um, so... I didn't wake up saying I need to be a CRO the next week, but at that moment in time, I thought, um, if I don't grab this, someone else is going to go grab this. So um, I grabbed it and, you know, ran worldwide from London for a couple months and was sick of, you know, work until three or four in yeah. the morning and moved back to the States. <laughs> so obviously you've taken on the, the, this role as a CRO. Um, you know, what were some of those additional learnings that you learned and, you know, how did you get yourself prepared to take on that CRO role? When you become a CRO, you got a lot more of the organization um, kind of under your umbrella, right? Um, from almost you know any aspect of the go-to-market. And as we talked about in Europe, I do believe um, it was a great learning moment. 
important for that. Because when you are over in Europe, um, even though you're the VP of EMEA or running the sales, uh, at the end of the day, almost everything goes to you as in a dotted line regardless. Field marketing, SDR, even understanding a budget for the first time and a true P&L of how that theater is being run. So that's what I meant, uh, what I said earlier of, of I do think that is one of the greatest positions in kind of this journey to prepare you for a CRO role. Um, you know, what I had to learn um, moving back from Europe is, is how to, you know, consistently engage and work within, with the executive team and the e-staff team, how to do a lot more planning for future years and budgeting and hiring in terms of headcount profile. I mean, headcount like quantity and where we were looking to go from a team and, and, and really a bottoms up plan across the globe. But from understanding the ecosystem, leading the ecosystem, managing the ecosystem so that you had a full kind of go-to-market team, I do think you get prepared for that in Europe. Yeah. What about the actual preparation of responsibility, right? Because taking on that seat, there's no one else to look up to. It's, it's, you're only looking down from there. Help us understand some of those, you know, learnings that you went through and you know how you were able to deal with that level of responsibility yeah like we've said bias for action like go jump into the fight and figure it out as you go uh but leverage your network too uh you know i've mentioned a number of folks that uh, i was lucky enough to work for that are all cro's now or ben cro's including others and i 100 percent have them on speed dial when i'm when i'm looking to kind of understand what could what could come kind of around the corner but I do think, you know, you can't overcomplicate it. Like the, the beauty is you got to go recruit a freaking world-class team. You got to go get someone great to run the Americas. You got to go get someone great to run Europe. And you got to go get someone great to run international. You've got to put a sales process in place that can scale for your solution and your customer profile. And then you've got to go, you know, put a culture and an organization in place that people want to be there for that journey. You know that they're learning. You know that they're growing their career. You know that they have the opportunity to have you know, a life-changing kind of exit or, or earning of money. And, and don't deviate from that. All you're doing is doing it at scale right now with maybe a little more pressure on your, on your shoulders like you talked about. But, but focus on the basics. Focus on the fundamentals, and I think it will help you a lot. Yes. Obviously, you know, Brian would have laid down some strong foundations for that seat. And so, you know, the, the role itself, um, you know, You've got the foundations there, but but what helps you now prepare yourself, you know, in going into an organization like Redis, you know, an organization where those foundations aren't there and you're now going to build this from the ground up? Yeah, it, it, it's it's confidence. It's it's seeing the movie before and it's going and focusing on the things that can move the needle the most. I think once you get to an organization of a little bit more scale, you do have to be really focused on where you focus. And, uh, you know, you can only spend your time in, in certain amount of areas. So you've got to go take an assessment of the organization and understanding where you can make an impact the most. I mean, one of the reasons that I was excited about Redis is I believe that, you know, the go-to-market team and this playbook that we talk about could, you know, massively impact that business. So, uh, you know, we set off and we ran at that. You know, we ran at rebuilding uh, the value framework. We ran at rebuilding the sales process. And we ran at, you know, recruiting what I think is a pretty incredible worldwide team. 
and just stayed laser focused on that without letting anything else kind of get in our way. Uh, I, I think that's the greatest learning, not trying to hop into every little single thing and hop in, as we say, the big rocks. Don't move the sand, move the big rocks, and you'll end up in a much better spot. Yeah. And so, you know, we've seen it a lot, you know, the, you know, the, the playbook's one point, there's, you know, following in peers, and peers can tend to be the carbon copies of their previous managers. Your artistry, what is it that's allowed you to, you know, develop you as a person and create your own artistry and your own personality in the role of a CRO that you're doing at the moment. Yeah, enjoy it. Right. Like, I'm, I mean that sincerely. Like, we, we talked about the culture of BMC. We talked about the culture of Aptonamers. I love those journeys. So why shouldn't I love this? And enjoy selling software. Enjoy running the team. And there's the transparency side and some other things that, like, I really are important to me. Uh, I'll walk people through, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of previous quarters or where we stand as a business. Like, so that's just a tenant that has been super valuable to me because I always wanted to work for people that I thought were transparent. So I thoughtfully bring that to Redis. And I think I thoughtfully brought that to ThoughtSpot. But hopefully it's, it's having some fun too as, as we're on these journeys. What do you think is achievable at Redis? Look, if you think about everything that we just talked about, my kind of history in this space, it was really the infrastructure play at BMC and even App Dynamics, and then the data play at ThoughtSpot. I think there were a couple things that, you know, I firmly believed when I took this opportunity. And, and the first is we are definitely still in the decade of data. I don't think we've at all hit the peak of that. Data is doubling rapidly. And I know we've seen a lot of successes with the Databricks and the snowflakes of the world, but I think we're just even at uh, the beginning of this uh, kind of decade of data. And then I saw, you know, this pre-Gen AI or Gen, a Gen AI space as being something that is without a doubt real and going to just have a massive change on the way we work. I believe that Redis is at the intersection of both those, right? Uh, it's the second largest pre-IPO data company out there outside of Databricks, which is obviously an incredible story. And that's really built us to get to 200 million AR, ARR based on the first part, the, the decade of data. Uh, we still have that in front of us while we are becoming the linchpin for architectures that run AI applications because they need to rely on sub-millisecond response time. Um, that is what I think the opportunity for Redis is. I think this is a one in, once in a generation type of opportunity. And I believe that, um, you know, everything that you tout in terms of the playbook uh, and kind of, you know, go to market excellence can have a massive impact on this organization over the next couple of years worldwide. So in terms of the foundations that you're laying at the moment, are you working towards a goal or is there, is there, is there, a, is there a target that you're kind of setting, whether it's revenue or IPO, having a generational impact? You know, what, what, does, what do those actual targets look like and, and what, are you, what are you driving your, your troops towards? Right now we're trying to be excellent at what we do. We're trying to go create a motion that um, probably 
elevates and gets the Redis value wider within the organization because there's uh, that amount of capability that this can go from a developer to an operator to a CIO and add significant value. So we're arming our troops with the ability to articulate that value, but then bring that value to our customers. So right now, that's what we're focused on. Excellence in the field. Uh, you know, beyond that, obviously, we're looking to, you know, have incredible growth year over year and bring this company from 200 million ARR to a billion. Wow. I mean, those are very lofty ambitions. What, what do you think are going to be the biggest, um, the biggest opportunities for you to really kind of go and, and drive that and, and, and make that happen in the, in, in the most effective way? Look, it's, it's everything that we've talked about. We've got to go recruit you know, a world-class team. We've got to go make sure we really understand our customers and where, where they are on this journey. Um, this journey to providing uh, applications in real time and then providing the AI capabilities on top of that. And we have to go be you know, the team and the solution that goes and solves those problems for them consistently. Great. Um, in, in terms of where you are on that right now, so are, are you kind of have you set yourself some some target areas that you're really looking to invest in? Is is Europe a, a big market for you internationally? Yeah, that we're we're growing across the globe. Um, so uh, we're growing in the Americas, but we're growing very massively internationally. Um, international is close to fifty percent of our revenue. And uh, we have openings across Nordics, UK, and a lot in um, ASEAN in terms of Singapore uh, and in India. So uh, that's a big push for us. If you, you know, look at kind of what Redis does and where, you know, the center of these applications that needs to scale massively and needs to have real sub millisecond response time, India and Asia is an incredible market for us, right? Uh, their, G their GDP is growing massively, but their population is growing massively too, and everything's being done digitally. On top of that, everything's 24-7. I was with an SVP of a massive bank in India when I was over there a couple months ago, and he, he walked me through that, and he basically said, hey, like three or four years ago, it was my mobile uh, banking application. That's what mattered, you know? And it, when it really mattered was basically eight to five. He goes, now we have dozens of transactions that need sub-millisecond response time and five nines. And now, due to the India, you know, how we're growing in the world that we're supporting, we need that available 24-7. Redis is the center of all that. So it's an incredible market for us, and it's an incredible opportunity for us. When you look at an organization like Redis, it's not, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a startup. But you've obviously had huge success. It's it's very easy to kind of judge an organisation like Redis without really knowing much of what is there and and, and what it can become. What what do you think maybe some of the common misconceptions are, and and how are you working towards perhaps you know dispelling those and helping to really drive forward something that's really meaningful and special? Yeah, I think. Look, if you go to the developer and enterprise community, Redis is loved. It's one of the most loved databases year in and year out for developers. Uh, and if you go talk to all the major banks just down the street, they rely on Redis for their most business critical applications and transactions. I think um, the next journey of Redis is probably bringing that brand and the value of that technology uh, at scale 
worldwide. And, and that's the opportunity that presents itself at Redis right now. Um, and, you know, we're, we get to do that through, uh, you know, what I think is one of the, you know, best CEOs in the Valley in terms of Rowan, who joined the, you know, business just a couple months before me and go take, you know, this fantastic technology and this fantastic kind of user adoption and go bring that at scale to the, across the enterprise. What makes him such a good CRO? CEO, sorry. Um, look, uh, first off, I would say he's a professional CEO. Um, so, so he hasn't founded a, a company before, but he's run multiple BUs at massive scale across Symantec, across Cisco. Um, and then he's been the CEO of Five Nines for the previous five years before joining Redis and grew that market cap massively. So, you know, everything we talked about, about my journey of being able to see the movie before, like he's been able to see that. And what I appreciate a ton about Rowan is, you know, he was at Cisco when they acquired AppDynamics. He got to see this playbook um, being executed for a little bit and really appreciating it and went out and wanted to bring that into Redis. Uh, so, you know, he understands the product uh, thoroughly. He's a developer and engineer at heart, understands how to run all aspects of the business, but really, like, alongside me, obviously, wants to bring in a world-class, scaled, go-to-market team. What's the biggest impact that the board and the organization has seen as a result of the, the initiatives that you guys have been driving over the last few months? Yeah, obviously, I think they've seen the talent that has joined the organization. Um, you know, we have Tom Rabot as our chief customer officer. We have John Gephardt as our VP of Americas. We brought in Amanda Gobb to run enablement and a number of other people. But it's it's trying to bring in the playbook that we've talked about at scale, right? Where we're messaging and bringing value to new personas, not just developers, but developers, operators, and uh, SVPs or CIOs. And we're bringing in a pipeline culture so that, you know, we're generating pipeline, not just the inbound uh, pipeline that Redis has a lot of because they're an open source uh, um, community, but actually going and generating pipeline in the highest demand organizations and the highest demand personas with the most amount of pain so that we can solve that. And they're starting to see the fruits of that at scale. Right. I think this is a time when we just reflect on what we've spoken about and what we've heard today because I think, you know, at the top of the show, we explained that you've obviously had this this amazing kind of within a very short period of time of six months, you were from um, IC to CRO in a very Not short period months. of time. That'd be too quick. <laughs> <laughs> I meant six years. Six months. I think it was very. more than six years. <laughs> we're stuck on six years. I don't think it was that. Well, I think but. the end of your IC career yeah, to then start taking your first line leadership, there was six years to get you to CRO. Is yes. that right? That's yeah. right, yeah. There's eight years from the start of AppDynamics to get you to CRO. Oh, wow. Which okay. obviously two years of that was actually Shit. operating as an IC. So that's a very quick transition. But I think what we By the sound of things, see, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't seem like it, it should have been. I mean, I got a lot of gray hair. This hasn't been that easy, just to be clear. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think what's interesting is, is that it's really easy to then ignore what happened before that and the foundations before that. 100%. And whilst we've obviously focused on that, kind of that six-year journey, it's the fundamentals and the mastery and the and the the acceptance, but also at the beginning, you spoke about the pressure. Don't be scared of the pressure, take the pressure. And by pressure, I think you're talking about accountability, being accountable, you know, taking more on, 
but actually delivering on what you promise. And I think at every stage, what the playbook really allows someone like you to achieve is to give you focus on what, how do I achieve excellence at the various gates? And I think what you've not been scared of is to really chase the excellence rather than chase the title. And naturally those foundations created the foundations which then allowed you to then have that really steep trajectory to get to that point of CRO because all of the elements, the mastery, or as much of it as is possible, because obviously you can never you can never master everything, but you've got the foundations that are gonna give you the building blocks from which you can then obviously make that 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 growth. Yeah. I would say not just like chase the opportunity, you know, chase the learnings, uh, you know, and embrace that and opportunities will, will come from it, you know? Uh, enjoy it, but learn from it and uh, the titles will come. But, but don't chase the title, chase the opportunity, chase the team, chase the learnings uh, and, and everything else will come. Mm. I think you focused on the mastery of just each individual stage of that journey. And it's just allowed you then to create that building block to then take you to that next step. And then you focused heavily on that next journey and you just carried on climbing in a very, very, very effective way. So it's been truly, you know, for me, it's just been an inspiration having you on the show. I know we've been on at you for, for a while to get you on here and uh, I appreciate, you know, you getting here and finally doing this yeah, with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, the persistence has paid off. So, yeah. um, but to, to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our various channels on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. All the links are in the description below and we look forward to welcoming you back for another session soon. Thank you very much.